Well, good morning, everyone, and once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here at First Baptist Church in Rocky Top, Tennessee. Today's message is from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, and I've just titled it, Turning the World Upside Down and Searching the Scriptures, which you'll see where that comes from in just a moment with a couple of the stories that we're going to look at as we continue our journey for the book of Acts. And you know, it's interesting to think about history and the course of change that has occurred in a relatively short period of time. For most people listening to this message, our great-grandparents would have been born in the early 1900s, or perhaps in rare cases, for the oldest of us here, maybe the late 1800s. And it seems almost mystical in 2023 to talk about these dates, but we're not as far removed from these eras as people often think. And it wasn't until 1910 that motorized vehicles outnumbered horses, just a little over 100 years ago. And in fact, it would be another 10 years in 1920, almost exactly 100 years ago, when a large portion of Americans would be driving an automobile. And then in the late 1950s, the jet engine for airplanes was introduced and commercial airlines began flying long distances across the country. What started in 1903 with Orville and Wilbur Wright's first flight now could take people across the Atlantic Ocean. And what I find fascinating is that up until the early 1900s, most people, generally speaking, traveled around in the same way that mankind, that humanity had been traveling for at least 2,000 years. Your great-grandparents and their early life traveled around in much the same way as Jesus did, on foot or on the backs of large beasts of burden. And then suddenly it changed. The graph of change didn't just gradually trend upward. It was a right-angle stop and shoot up at 90 degrees. Our world has had its fair share of change and transformations, revolutions and counter-revolutions. And the early church, in what we're studying in the book of Acts, found itself in the midst of the greatest transformation history had ever known and has ever known as they were taking the gospel, as the church was taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Some received the news of Christ with great joy. Others were opposed and some were skeptical. And the first group we will encounter today made a statement that was more true than they realized. They accused Paul and his companions of turning the world upside down. This is Acts 17 verses 1 through 8. Now, when they had passed through Amphilia, excuse me, let me say that again, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. 
You know, we left off at the end of last week's message with the conversion of the Philippian jailer. It was a beautiful story of salvation and God's providence and miraculous power as Paul found himself there in that jail. And now Paul and his companions are traveling off and they end up in Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica is just a little over a hundred miles journey from where Paul just left in Philippi. So Paul would have walked there. It was the capital of Macedonia, and it was on a very important road. There was a road connecting the Western Empire of Rome that went across Macedonia to the Eastern Empire of Rome, and this was called the Via Ignatia. It was this main Roman road, and it was named after the proconsul in Macedonia, Gnaeus Ignatius, and via from the Latin, via is from the Latin meaning route or way or via, via. We still use that word often today. And it was an important Roman accomplishment this Rome was, or this road was in Rome, to unite both sides of the empire. It was used as this logistical system to make certain that the conquered territories perpetually stayed under Roman rule. And Roman roads are, have kind of a famous uh, almost persona in themselves, even by modern standards, they are exceptional constructive works. And they were about 20 feet wide, covered with polygonal slabs of rock or a thick layer of sand. And this particular road, the Via Ignatia, spanned a distance of 696 miles. It was built with no modern equipment, and part of the road is still used today. And this would have been the road that Paul took from Philippi to Thessalonica. The Romans built thousands of miles of roads. In fact, about 52,000 miles of roads the Roman Empire constructed, many of which are still in existence to this day. And Thessalonica was a large city of about 200,000 people. This is where Paul and his companions find themselves. It was the chief city. It was the capital. And it was considered this key place because of its position on that very famous Roman road. It was the key to all of Macedonia. And so Paul is going into these large metropolitan areas, and he's there, and he's sharing Christ, he's sharing truth, and once the gospel penetrates these large cosmopolitan centers, it's Paul's belief that the Holy Spirit is going to use those towns, those major areas, to send out their own missionaries to the smaller towns. And this proved to be true, especially in Thessalonica. Now, how do we know this? Well, later, Paul will write two letters to the church at Thessalonica. We have them in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians, in the opening chapter, he writes to them, the church there, he says, And you, church in Thessalonica, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, Paul uses a very unique word here when he's complimenting the Thessalonians in this letter. He says, for the word of the Lord sounded forth. It's the Greek word exekeo, and our word echo 
comes from this. And most of us are, of course, familiar with how we use that particular word, echo. It's a circumstance in which something is heard, and then it is repeated again and again. It is echoed. We echo what we hear. And after Paul's missionary journey to and through Thessalonica, he preached to the people there, and they were converted. They were saved, and then they echoed the gospel message that Paul had preached to them. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This was Paul's consistent message. He died on the cross, taking up on him the sin of the world. He was resurrected, conquering death, hell and the grave, and now he will return one day to judge the world in righteousness. But this marvelous period of grace now exists in which God, in his love, has provided the provision, the remedy, the solution, the redemption for mankind's death-producing plot. You see, God's plan is not that we just receive, 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 and soak, and study, 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 and read, 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 as important as all of those things are, and as marvelous as all of those things are, and might I say as necessary as, as all of those things are. But he wants us to take his word and share it with people and live it out in action. And as always was the case, and as always is the present case, when the gospel is shared, some people believe, some people ignore it, some people dismiss it, and others get angry. And the reality is this, when humankind is confronted with the reality of their situation, they do not want to change. I didn't, and you didn't. The old self we have, so to speak, before we are born again by the Spirit of God, does not want to die. And if it feels threatened, if this old self, if this fleshly self feels threatened, for many people, if they feel like their current way of life is being threatened, they will fight to preserve it. And that's what happens in this story that we read here. Some people stir up the crowd against Paul and his traveling companions, and then they go on a hunt to find them. And these were some Jews who were not happy with the message of Christ penetrating the area. So they get this group together, and it's very interesting how Luke records this. So the translation we read says that they stirred up some wicked men. But I love the way the King James Version puts it. This group of ruffians and thugs that they stir up in the King James Version, they're called a certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Now that, that right there, is a really good insult. And so the next time you want to insult someone, call them a lewd fellow of a baser sort. But what it's really saying is this. Some of these Jews who were jealous and were stirring up this strife, they found some low-life people who would do their bidding and would be trashy. And unfortunately, we know that the world contains some folks like that, these lewd fellows of the baser sort. But as they go and they try to hunt down Paul and Silas, they can't find them, but they do find some of the converts and some of the people in the church there. They do find some Christians. And one of the converts in Thessalonica was a man named Jason. And so this angry mob drags Jason and some others out before the leaders of the city and listen to what they say. It's a, they say, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. These men who have turned the world upside down. Now, this was not meant as a compliment. 
This was meant as a slight, a complaint, a cut, to create an uproar. But it was truer than they would ever know. Turning the world upside down. You see, the world as it stands is turned the wrong way. And the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms people and turns them right side up again. And it would be a wonderful thing if the world started looking at Christians as those who turned the world upside down. And I may say, I hope I live long enough to see the American church be the people of God who are willing to do this full throttle, no stop. That is a great thing. That we would live, love, serve, and share in such a way that Rocky Top, Tennessee would never be the same because God's people are here. Paul and Silas turned the world upside down, as did the early Christians in the early church. And here, they're now going to travel to a place called Berea, which is where we're going to finish our study for today. This is Acts 17, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So there's a lot going on here, but let's talk about what Paul did as we kind of pull this exposition of the scripture. So we first read that when they arrived here, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, if you've been following the story of the book of Acts, you know that this is a very familiar strategy that Paul was doing here in Berea. They went to the synagogue first. So despite the hot resistance that so many Jews put up against Paul and his companions and the other apostles, Paul believed that the gospel went first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, which was everyone else. The Old Testament prophets foretold the coming of the Messiah, and they were Jewish, these prophets were. They told It was told that the blessings of God would, were channeled through the Jewish people, starting with their Genesis patriarch Abraham, and the Messiah himself, Jesus himself, was born a Jew. And so now we learn something about the people in Berea. Luke records that they were more noble than the folks of their previous stop there in Thessalonica. And another way to translate that is that they found their audience here was more fair-minded. They were more fair-minded. Now, two things earned this compliment for the Bereans. First of all, they received the word with all readiness. And secondly, they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. The Bereans heard the teaching here of Paul, the most famous apostle and theologian of the early church, dare I say of all time, and the human author of at least 13 New Testament books. And yet they heard him preach, and they still searched the scriptures when he taught. They searched the scriptures to see if what he was teaching was truly biblical. They would not just simply accept Paul's teaching without checking for themselves. And they did it so they could know if these things were so. And when the Bereans heard Paul teach, their settled reaction wasn't, you know, wow, he's a fine speaker. 
or it wasn't. You know, I don't like the way that guy talks. He's a little dull. He's a little boring. He's a little monotonous. Or it wasn't, you know, that is a funny guy. Instead, the Brians wanted to know, are these things so? Are they true, what he's saying? Does Paul teach us the truth? We must search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things are so. You know, especially when I was a student pastor and I worked with students, I often encouraged them to go back to the Bible, read the scriptures, and ask the questions to make sure that I was teaching them the truth. I told some of them I could tell you all anything, and you would believe it. And, you know, it can be difficult to see scoffers of the Christian faith throw their daggers and lob their arrows at the Bible and belief in God. However, it is far more disconcerting when we see so-called Christian leaders propagating things that are outlandish and untrue and unbiblical. And the only checkmate, the only thing that we would need to do, that would need to be done, would simply be for people to open their Bibles and check for themselves. And I have witnessed people go through the line at Walmart and scrutinize their receipts after they go through the checkout line. And if they were overcharged 14 cents for that tube of toothpaste, they'll spend the next 45 minutes in the customer service line to get that handful of of pennies back. But then a preacher tells them some zinger like God helps those who help themselves, or babies have to be baptized in order to be saved, or Elon Musk is the Antichrist, and they'll sit with jaws to the floor and believe it without ever cracking a bomble themselves. But the Brians were not that way. Their research was not casual. It had a certain gusto to it. They searched the scriptures. It was worth it for them to work hard at it, to investigate what the Word of God said and how Paul's teaching ultimately matched up with it. And we read that they searched the scriptures daily to discover this this truth. It wasn't a one-time quick look. They made a point of this diligent, extended study. They searched the scriptures daily to find out because they believed that they could understand and find out truth from the Bible. For them, the Bible was not just a pretty book of poetry or mystery or drama or nice inspirational thoughts for the day. It was a book of truth, and that truth was there to be discovered. And so with all of their diligent searching concerned from the truth, the Bereans, they didn't become skeptics. They received the word with readiness. When Paul preached, they had open hearts, but they also had clear heads. You know, many people have clear heads but closed hearts, and they never received the word with readiness. But it was both of these things that made the Bereans fair-minded, noble than those in Thessalonica. And so as a result of their diligence and their faithfulness and their obedience and their study here, what was the result? Well, we read that many of them believed. You know, Paul had nothing to fear, nor do we, by the diligent searching of people when they began to look at the Scriptures. He had nothing to fear, Paul did, when the Bereans, in however capacity that they did it, began to search the Scriptures here and study because he knew that if they were really seeking God and His Word, they would find out that what Paul was preaching was true. And this is exactly what happened among those in Berea. And the result result was many of them believed. And I can see it, and it's always thrilling. I can see it when people, in people, when God is really working in their heart, and He's calling them to salvation. Oftentimes, they'll have lots of questions, and this makes people nervous sometimes because sometimes these questions may seem harsh or pointed or even laced with some doubt. But I believe, and I know, 
when there is a sincere search for truth, the only conclusion, the only conclusion that they will draw when they seek God and through the scriptures is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The Bible is true and they will believe just as the Bereans did. So what are some takeaways that we can sort of pull from this as personal applications for our own life as we can kind of wrap this up with our final study, these timeless takeaways as I call them? Well, the first one is this. Jesus confronts us with the decision. You know, the number one reason people don't become a Christian is because it would require a change in their lifestyle. The crown of rule that I have placed upon my head must be removed and placed at the feet of Christ as I bend my knees to him. Following Christ by necessity involves relinquishing control, surrendering to him, and no longer living for ourselves and our own desires. Living for Christ and living for ourselves is not possible. They are mutually exclusive, and this is the great struggle. When Paul was in Thessalonica, he found that there were some who received God's word well and believed. Others, however, did not. They rejected Christ. When Paul was in Berea, many people believed when they heard the word. Others did not. They rejected Christ. Now, while God in his grace often gives us time and pursues us over and over and over again, in the end, There is no middle ground with accepting and following Jesus. There are only two possible responses to Jesus. Yes or no. Either we do or we don't. And for those that do not, they do so at their own peril. Now we shouldn't expect all people to receive the message with gladness, but we are expected to gladly share with all people as God directs us. We must trust the Spirit of God is working, and those who will respond will respond by God's calling. Secondly, there was a great compliment given to the early church here, turning the world upside down. Now, I'll be brief here because I touched on this while we were reading this from the Scripture, but this was the accusation made against the Christians by the angry mob that they were turning the world upside down. And we must remember that what God calls us to is not to be merely nice people, not to be merely loving people, not to merely do humanitarian or charitable work, but God calls us to be saved, to be redeemed from our wickedness, to be saved from the wrath of God, and to be messengers of light, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to tell people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And as Peter said earlier in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And while I certainly do not think that Christians should go out looking for confrontation and strife, when the world is faced with the reality of their condition, it is truly turning the world upside down. It's turning their world upside down. And one of the greatest compliments we could ever receive is to be counted among those who turn the world upside down. Thirdly, searching the scriptures. To pull from several verses from the Bible, Jesus said in John 5:39, "You search the scriptures because you think it in them, you think it that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me." A truth from the Old Testament, Psalm 119.105, The word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
And then in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Time and time again in Scripture, we are admonished to read God's Word, to absorb God's truth, to meditate on the treasures of Scriptures, and be engrossed with what God has revealed. And in doing so, we develop a biblical worldview and live a life that is anchored in truth, and we are trained to detect falsehood. One of my favorite verses from the Bible comes from the story that we read today in Acts 17, verse 11, that these here in Berea, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all readiness. They searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. And finally, it's a model for missions and church planting. Over and over again through the book of Acts and here in Acts 17, and we're not even finished with the chapter, we see Paul came, he, Paul stayed for a period of time to teach and disciple, and when he left, someone stayed behind to grow and strengthen the church. Jason, a believer, stayed in Thessalonica to continue to help and strengthen the church there. When Paul left Berea, we just read he left Timothy and Silas for a time to strengthen the church there, and that's a good model to follow. Churches helping churches, and when mission work, ta- mission work takes place, we send people who are willing to stay for an extended time to deeply and thoroughly disciple believers, and then a strong, mature Christians will stay to invest and help that growing church and group of believers. And I have to say, I've been so greatly encouraged by many in this community who are praying for this church and who are constantly asking about the condition of this church and are offering their support for this group of believers here. You know, in closing, Lecky, W.E.H. Lecky, which was a 19th century historian, said this of Jesus. He said, The character of Jesus not only has the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its practice. And he has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and more than all the exhortations of moralists. It's incredible what a small group of people who love Jesus can accomplish. Better said, and more biblically said, it's incredible what a small group of people can do as Jesus works in them and through them. And that's the continued message, friends, throughout the book of Acts. Continued obedience and faithfulness and the continued spread of the gospel. And that's my prayer for you, for me, and for this church, and for the people of Rocky Top, Tennessee, will know that the Christian message turns the world upside down and that those who we reach would search the scriptures because in doing so, just like the Bereans, they, therefore, will believe. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, thank you for ears to hear, for minds to think, and for hearts to receive your word. We ask you, God, that you will do what only you can do in this church and in this community and in the world. Please call people to salvation and help us to be obedient, help us to be equipped, and help us to live your truth, the only truth, and share it with the world. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen.